So, uh, pinch hitting for Joe, and I've heard good things about that, and uh, hopefully uh, he's back next week to resume uh, this study of David and David's heart. He gave me the assignment to talk about. Uh, uh, so, we're looking, uh, Joe asked me to talk, uh, to look at a contrast between Saul's heart and David's heart. So that's what we'll attempt to do in the next few. Uh, I want to start this in 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel primarily. And, and of course, you know the story. And, of course, the thing with the uh, average age group that we have here of 65, couple of people younger that that, bring, that brings it down to 65 With without you guys it would be way up in the mid 70s uh, everybody knows these stories so I, I don't think I'll break much news to you tonight but maybe we can still be reminded of a few things and uh, have some incredible discussion I'm sure led by Richard and Fran among others so 1 Samuel chapter 12 uh, of course, God has, the Israelites have begged for a king. Finally, God relents. Samuel is really upset with it. And then God tells Samuel, don't be upset. It's me they have rejected, not you. So, uh, so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. First Samuel, <clears throat> excuse my throat, 12 and verse 14. Um, Samuel says this, to the Israelites, he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And he, this warning occurs more than once. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, really throughout the Old Testament, it, it began with Adam and Eve. Obedience to God is just fundamental and basic, and that's what the Lord expects. Um, I want to ask you, to, as we start this, I want us to understand something here about what he says here. If you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord... What is, what is, what is he saying there? If you will follow the Lord, keep his commands. Keep his commands. Other thoughts. Put him first. Put him. Put him first. It's. Uh, he's not looking for nominal. As we would say today, Christianity, of course there's no Christianity at this time, but he's not looking for nominal following somebody who says, well, I'm a member of this church, but I haven't, I haven't been in years, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. He's not looking for that. When he's saying, if you will follow the Lord, he's referring back to the principle set in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses writes to us how that God said, I want you to love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That is following the Lord. Uh, 
And it includes obeying the commandments, obviously, but not obeying them for commandment's sake. Obeying them because we love the Lord. That's why we do what we do. He's talking about devotion. And so when Samuel's talking here, he's reminding, and he's going all the way back to Deuteronomy, I want you to follow the Lord. Love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And, it will, and if you will do this and you're king, it will go well. Things will be good. If you don't, things will not be good. Uh, so he's talking about devotion. So let's get into Saul here. Look at two incidents from Saul's life. In chapter 13, and he had been the king for two years at this point, and here come the Amalekites. No, that's the next group. Here come the Philistines, and it starts in verse 5 of chapter 13. So the Philistines roll up on the uh, approach to Israel there where Saul and the guys are with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops. And I was thinking about that. 30,000 chariots. That would really make a dust cloud. Is that 3,000? No, it's 30. Mine says 3. Let me read it again. 30,000. 30, Verse 5. The Philistines, thank you. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000. So they had quite a crowd. So Saul approaches Samuel and he says, before I go to fight these guys, I need the Lord's blessing. And would you, would you do that? Would you make a sacrifice for us? And we, we need a blessing. So Samuel says, I'll do that in seven days. He sets up a time, we'll do the, we'll do the sacrifice for you. So Saul's waiting. The, everything's building. The Philistines, are, things are getting shaky. And the, the scripture says the Israelites feel pressed. They're feeling the pressure. And so the time comes for Samuel to do the sacrifice, and he doesn't show up. He's a no-show. And Saul's doing this. That's what he does. He says, okay, Samuel's not here. I'll do it myself. And the scripture says as soon as he finished with offering the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. So maybe Samuel being late, as Saul would have seen it, maybe was it a test? When God, uh, when God doesn't fulfill things on our timetable, do we get stressed out about it and decide to do it ourselves? Or, or, or wait for him to answer what we're waiting on? Or maybe I just need to do this myself. Uh, that's a pretty common deal, isn't it? How many things have been messed up because we did it ourselves? Because we didn't wait. Anyway, that's the case. And when Samuel shows up, here's his comment. What have you done? What have you done? Saul said, you aren't here like you were supposed to be when I thought you were supposed to be here, so I did it myself. I offered the sacrifice myself. And Samuel says, you, verse 13, you have done foolishly, and that's going to cost you your kingdom. God will take the kingdom away from you because you've done right out of the Right out of the hat. Saul's early, early uh, opportunities that he has here as king, and he 
that he, he assumes a position that he's not authorized to assume, and that's offering a sacrifice to God. It's sort of interesting. Breaking God's protocol in order to act, offer a sacrifice to God. I'm going to break God's rules so I can offer him a sacrifice. It's kind of like we just finished in John. We, we, the Pharisees, they, they bring Jesus to the Romans to be killed, executed. It's murder. They know there are no charges against Jesus. When Pilate calls them in, they say, well, we can't go in there because we... We want you to kill this guy on the Passover. We can't come in because we would become unclean if we came in there. So as they are instigating murder, they're trying to not become unclean. It's a, sort of the same thing that Saul does. Uh, I'm breaking God's protocol in order to offer sacrifice to him. So he says, you've done foolishly. Is there a lesson there anywhere? Go ahead. What's the lesson, Eric? So I would, I would suggest we look at what his motive was. Okay, what go. Was he, what was he motivated by? And? I think he's motivated by fear. <coughs> yeah. And I may have made a right decision when motivated by fear, but I've never made a wise one. <laughs> so the idea that I would allow fear to make, uh, to motivate me to do something, even if it appears righteous, never let fear be your motive. Good point. More. If I could jump on the back of that, I mean, it feels like Saul kind of gets a little bit of a raw deal here because, I mean, Samuel said, look, I'm going to be there in seven days. Saul waited seven days. He's fearful, as Eric said. Um, he knows that he, he needs God on his side, so he offers sacrifices without Samuel. Um, and so... On the one hand, I'm like, well, he, he tried to do the right thing. But I think the lesson here is uh, along the lines of what Eric was saying. Um, he was motivated by fear and not trust that God was going to take care of him and, and do what he promised he would do. And we're going to see as we develop this with Saul... He never has an intimate relationship with God. Absent. Doesn't have it. And that's going to develop as we go through this. So, so that's, see, to me, that's part of it. I mean, we're, we're seeing the beginning, but I think the critical part is what continues on is David made what I would consider much worse mistakes. But when he was told, you're the man, his response was different. As we look at this... Saul's errors are not nearly as grievous as David's in terms of the way we would evaluate it. Offering an illegitimate sacrifice you're not authorized to do versus murder, stealing, covetousness, adultery, deceit. And the key is going to be in the way they react, both reacted and the reason each reacts differently is the heart. And I would say to you, uh, yes, Saul was obviously motivated by fear. Never a reason. Here, here's the thing. 
anytime I disobey God at whatever level, that disobedience is a rebellion against God's sovereignty. I am not acknowledging God as sovereign. I am taking matters into my own hand based on my own rationale and justifying what I do. It's cutting at God's sovereignty. It's not revering the Lord. And this has been a problem from, of mankind from the beginning. Not recognizing and understanding the sovereignty of God. He's God. He's not my grandpa. He's not someone to be argued with. And deciding to do anything based on what I think should be done, for whatever reason I think it should be done, if I've got direction from him, it's going against his sovereignty. That's the bottom line. And that's going to be part of Saul's problem as we go through and develop this over the next three and a half hours. He has problems recognizing, what are we laughing about? <laughs> recognizing God's authority, God's sovereignty. So anyway, it's kind of, you know, it, go, it goes to Nadab and Abihu. Scripture says in Leviticus that they offered strange fire before the Lord. Bzzz. They did not respect God's sovereignty. Uh, they, the, the priests were instructed to take fire from the altar inside the tabernacle there uh, to use that fire to make incense fires and other fires. What was a strange fire? They might, I don't know. But maybe it was that they didn't do the prescribed thing and they just whipped out the matches or their big lighters and did it the, their way. Moses goes and tells Aaron, your two boys are dead. They broke God's rule about how to offer incense. You need to be quiet. Scripture says that Aaron held his peace. I can't criticize God for being sovereign. My boys acted foolishly or they acted arrogantly. They knew what to do. They were sons of the high priest. They knew the rules. They decided it doesn't matter. Bottom line is Saul says here, I'm the king. I need to offer God a sacrifice. Samuel's not here. Let's get on with it. We humans have a problem as we think through things in accepting God's sovereignty. And we have a big problem rationalizing our behaviors. And we've had that since the beginning. And the scripture says these things are written that you might learn from them. Don. How, how, how do I measure the sovereignty of God with time. How do I understand your question? 
we have we have some serious moves planning. We're looking for God's sovereignty in this thing. When does he say, go? You're moving to another location. Planning. <coughs> Lord willing. Okay. Are you looking for the sovereignty of God in that move? I would say yes. It's something that I don't know all the answers to. When we moved here, we were very involved in several ministries where we were, and Pam and I had the conversation. I said, I really hate to leave these ministries. I think this is the most effective I've ever been in serving God and doing these two things that we were doing, three things we were doing. And it bothered me to come out here. And Pam said, well, we just look for ways to do whatever we need to do. So that's how we look at this next move, is wherever we are to be available and useful. Benita. Especially when you look at Calvinists, they will use the same vocabulary, but a very different dictionary. The sovereignty to a Calvinist means everything has been decided and is determined before we were even born. But and sovereignty and predestination do not have the same definition. To a Calvinist, they will define things differently. They mm -hmm. will use the word sovereignty differently than I will use sovereignty. Mm -hmm. They will use the mean sovereignty to mean everything's been decided. Everything is God's will. He's in control of every molecule that ever happened. That's how they will define it. Mm -hmm. I think um, we can, since we hear that language a lot without even realizing it, we can think, okay, when you're talking about the move, what is God and God's sovereignty? What is that you're doing? That, you know, how does the move and time work into that? And I would say, I don't look at God, because I'm not a Calvinist, and I do not believe he's, he's sovereign and that he's like a king and he's in control of everything. And he can also then determine that we have free will because he has the power over everything. Mm -hmm. So when I think God's sovereignty, because I do not think in that manner, I'm thinking he is the, he is the power over all that, de that demands my that demands, but desires mm. my um, love well, for him and to bow before him. So I think that's how it works in time, in that um, God's desire for your life is wherever you are, that you love him and serve him. Yeah. It's not a, oh no, if I move here, I'm going against his sovereignty, or his, because of that definition of sovereignty meaning He's determined everything, I think, is not correct in yeah. what we're talking a couple, about. A couple of things. But, but Saul, you serve the sovereignty of God by take, uh, making a move. It was a timed thing. Had he waited, well, he didn't get the sacrifice done and here was Samuel. Well, 
number one, the word sovereignty and predestination have two different meanings. They're not the same word. So if someone chooses to define sovereignty by the definition of predestination, that's up to them, but it's two different words with two different meanings. But what we're talking about here is God has a rule about sacrifice. God is sovereign. He has a rule. It doesn't matter if it's on if it's early at the same time or late, that's his rule. You do it this way and the priest or prophet offers the sacrifice. So changing how who does it is breaking his sovereignty. That's what all disobedience is. I, I, I agree. And so that's not the same thing as us not knowing what is God's will for the future. Two different things. Wherever we are, whenever we are, what's our job? Follow the Lord. And whatever opportunities he gives us. In terms of commandments, we need to do our very best to honor his commands. That's his sovereignty. Not his omnipotence, or uh, I mean his, what's the omni word for knowledge? Omniscience. Omniscience. Thank you. It's his sovereignty that we respect. His omniscience is beyond our ability to understand. But because he knows... The future, the, the scripture's full of exhortation to modify, change, or repent your behaviors so that you will please the Lord. So we obviously have choice. Uh, but the question of his sovereignty is our decision to obey him or not. Anyway, let's not get too far in the weeds because it will be Three and a half hours, maybe four. But it's good discussion. It's great discussion. Going back to what was going on with Saul, I see this, you know, we can, uh, like, simplify it without the predestination and the sovereignty and all of that. God desires our obedience more than the sacrifice. That's what it says. That's where Saul missed the boat. And that is what Samuel is going to tell Saul. That's, you must have read ahead because... That's exactly what he tells Saul. To obey, we'll get to that. Is it okay to debate God? Uh, I'm not big on that. I'm not a fan of that. God's big enough to handle it, but that to me is extremely egotistical and presumptive. And I would not dare debate God. I think Abraham Abraham had questions. There are examples. I wouldn't recommend it. That's me. Make your own choice. I'm going to say I'm like Isaiah when God appeared to Isaiah and he saw a manifestation of his presence. He says, oh, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. Can I disagree with you? Yeah. <laughs> I think... Um, I still don't recommend it, though. <laughs> and I'm going to say I, I do if you're going to it with an honest, broken heart. Because when I have gone to God with mm -hmm. um, really deep questions, I mean, if I was a 
parent of a Uvaldo child, I could be debating God right now. Yeah. And I think God wants that honest relationship that's gone to with love. So if you're looking at debate as a, a verbal argument that's disrespectful, no. But if you're looking at it as, why God? And I think it's very similar to the psalm that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If it's that attitude of honest um, relationship, yeah. that you go to God honestly with your hurts and what's, what's going on in your life, I think that's what God wants And the psalms more. have that. Yeah, I think that's what God wants more. And I think that's why David, and if we put it into this class, I think that's why David, was a God after a man after God's own heart because even when his he didn't understand what was going on and um, he know he knew he failed to there was some hard things in life he went to God with all of his mm -hmm. emotions and his love and his reverence yeah uh, you know Job finally said Lord what in the world are you doing I'm one of the best guys you got. Job questions God about why'd you let this happen? And God says, chapter 38, who do you think you are? Where were you when I did, and he just did all this. Why are you coming to me asking me why I do anything? That's why I would not do it. I think God certainly, I think, this is me thinking here, understands our cries to him when we don't understand things. But I would not recommend debating him any more than Job would recommend debating him after he tried to debate him. You know, there's a book called Lamenting in the Psalms. Yep. And have you read that one? I haven't read it. And I would say... There's a lot of lament the in the Psalms. Is a, the debate is, I would say, lament because... Um, to me is a better word than debate because more higher percentage of laments are in the Psalms than anything else. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of all the laments are this questioning mm -hmm. to God. Yep. And I think there's a reason that the highest percent of laments are there to say, come to me. Come to me. It's okay to come to me mm -hmm. with your questions. And I think it is okay to come to him that's with questions. Debate is the word that's a, a tough one. But I think yep. lament Learning, if we would learn to lament instead of only going to the Psalms that are um, prettier uh -huh. and high, but we would learn, but learning to lament, um, I think will will help us grow our faith and grow I closer to Him. I would say that saying, "Lord, I don't understand this," is different from saying, God, why did you do this, and putting the blame on God. The problems in the world are from sin, not from God. The source of all of our problems is sin, and God does not commit sin or bring on sin. That's from the spiritual enemy. That's where the problems come from. And to say, Lord, I don't understand this. I'm hurting. He understands that. It's like Jesus said, like Jesus prayed. But to blame God for bad things, I think, is completely out of bounds. It's not his fault. You know, when I was um, 18, 
I had a foster child that was in our family that was pulled out and it was a horrible experience and heartbreaking and you also hear all these things you know whatever God's will is and at 18 that process of going through with God the what are you thinking why are you doing this and don't you love him I wish he had died instead because you know we had all these other foster kids that became criminals so you know it's like how could you do this to this little child and God didn't do it I understand that but what I'm saying is that process you couldn't say that to me at 18 because I was I wasn't asking God um, I was not debating I was really asking God who are you and trying to understand that what I understood at 18 and what I understand is 60, and yes, I am 60, is is two different things, but the process of that child mm-hmm. coming to him and asking and being broken and, and, and being angry at him, because in my mind, he could have stopped it. Mm-hmm. He could not have, he could have stopped putting that child back in this abusive relationship, which ended up very abusive. So I think those things in our life we come to all the time. I know someone in my family that went through that and rejected God because of it. I didn't because I went to him with it. And I think we need to allow people to be honest with God with the emotions that may not be quite right knowing that he's the loving father. And it's whatever, I mean, I'm just saying I don't want anybody when they're going through something that hard in their life, whether they're 60 or 20, to not only be struggling with who God is, but having to hold back their honest feelings and emotions from him because they feel like they're gonna, he's gonna, because at that point you're already thinking God doesn't love you. So then if you're sitting there going, oh no, I'm disobedient to him, he doesn't love me anyway. I want, I think it's important that people know if you are that raw with God and that hurting, be honest with him, be respectful, but he's going to love you through it. I agree. Not, I got that. I think that's, I, I feel like it's very important because I would yep. not, when I've had some of those things in my life, I didn't, I, it's real important to me that we, we don't put the God is unhappy with you sharing your feelings. He already knows what they are. Yep. You know, so it's like, don't, you don't need that pressure of, oh no, am I just being disobedient again that can come on you when you're just trying to, if you're going to him, be truthful and honest mm-hmm. and reverent, but be real. And I think God's okay with that. And I think that's why we have some of the scriptures that we don't study as much and the terminology we don't study as much. Well, I think in the interest of time, yeah, and okay. it doesn't, there's no rule about how far we need to go here on our, on the five pages we're halfway through the first page. <laughs> Literally. God can certainly handle it. I would tell you as mature or adult Christians, I would not blame God for anything. The evil in the world comes for the one who is evil. And God allows free will and, and a lot of things happen. And God did not... endorse the shooting in Uvalde. God gets a lot of blame. Why didn't God stop this or this or this? 
we're in a world that he created with free moral agency and he allows people to live. It's a sin-infected, fallen world that tells us we need Jesus. The world needs Jesus because it is totally messed up. And from abused children, you name it, it's horrible. And that's what sin does. It always does it. And God is always loving. But he is sovereign and he is God and we are not. And I would say, yep, lament and cry to him and say, Lord, I don't understand. Don't blame him for things. And if you're counseling with someone that's in that position, be wise and loving and patient and slow to speak and listen and try to help them understand that God is not the source of hurt. You need to be very wise and very patient. We all will have those issues that we cannot understand and that we wish had not happened to us. We all have them. The bottom line is God is sovereign. Saul did not respect it. And Samuel told him that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Well, I think I think Saul just failed to respect God's sovereignty and offered the sacrifice himself because it just needed to be done in his mind. Time's wasting. Let's get on with it. God's not on our timetable. And we need to learn to wait on the Lord and remember that we're, we're, we're humans. Um, so we won't go into the second, second thing, which was even more incredible than the first one in Saul, just very briefly in 1 Samuel 15. He says, go destroy the Amalekites. Saul goes into battle, comes back with the king and the best of their oxen and livestock. Samuel says, what, what are you doing? Why didn't you obey the Lord? Sam, and Saul says, I did obey him. I destroyed him. Well, I've got Agag here and I've got the livestock so we can offer sacrifices. He says, oh my goodness. That's basically what Samuel says. And Saul starts going into all of these excuses and so Samuel asked him what's you said you destroyed him what's, what's the sound I'm hearing in the, from the livestock and then Saul says well look, the people got them the people did that it's like Flip Wilson there back in the 70's the people made me do it that's where Flip got that the people made me do it Finally, in their discussion, Samuel says to Saul, just stop. Just stop. That's verse 16. He said, the Lord anointed you king. You had an opportunity here. You get to make all these choices as king. You're the king. Know who you are. Don't blame the people for what you allow or do. Don't say the people made me do it. You're the king. God gave you an opportunity to be a leader for this nation, for him. 
You didn't do it. He, uh, two times, <laughs> Saul says, but I have obeyed the Lord. No. Is partial obedience obedience? You didn't obey the Lord at all. You took the king. And evidently, by the way, he probably was lying to Samuel because about 15 to 20 years later, after he says, I killed them all except Agag, the Amalekites come, the very same people come and destroy two of Israel's cities and take off the women and children, including two of David's wives. Where'd they come from? Saul didn't destroy them. David wouldn't have had the problems he had if Saul had done what the Lord told him to do in the first place. Uh, a lot of, and that's where, as Christie says in verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying his word? Rhetorical question. No. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees. Go learn uh, what it means that mercy is greater than sacrifice. God, do God doesn't need sacrifices. Sacrifices were for people. They weren't for God. They were for the people to learn to give back to God. So uh, Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah, the first chapter, 11 uh, through 13. He says, Isaiah's really laying it down on them in chapter 1 there. He says, what God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need the blood of bulls and goats. I'd rather you just obey me. So, Saul didn't revere that God's absolute presumed to take on duties that were not given to him, rationalized that it's okay to take some of the spoil if we do it, make sacrifices out of it. Equivocated, said, well, I did do what God said to do. I destroyed them. No, no, you didn't. Blame shift, the people did it. I feared the people. It's the people's fault. In all of this, and finally, I want you to notice this one thing, and we'll leave Saul in 1 Samuel 15. After all, they go through all this, and Saul finally says, okay, let's see, 15, I think I'm looking for verse 30. Yeah, 1 Samuel 15, 30, so Saul says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. I did sin, but would you honor me now and go back with me to offer sacrifices so that it'll look good in front of the elders and in front of the people? He never got it. Using Samuel for show. He wanted to look good. He never had an intimate relationship with God, and that is the big difference between him and David. And like Benita was saying earlier, David's sins on appearance uh, were much worse than Saul's, the way we would look at it. As soon as David saw Bathsheba, 
He asked about her and then he sent for her. So there's the coveting. That's commandment number 10. Then he had sex with her and she got pregnant. Leviticus 20, the penalty for adultery is death. Uh, David didn't have to go through that. You know, um, sin is never one and done. <laughs> it just never is one and done. Disobeying the Lord's commands, and we all know this from our own experience. Choosing to put the sovereignty of God on the back burner and saying, I want to do this for myself. It always, like water, it always goes downhill. It leads to guilt, to shame, to excuses, to alibis, to rationalizing, to more sin, to lies, and a lot of times it leads to an appetite for more sin. It always cascades and mushrooms and snowballs, as we would say. So, David has Uriah murdered. First he tries to cover it up by getting him to come home. Uriah's a man of honor. He won't sleep, he won't go in and be comforted with his wife while, his, while Uriah said, my brothers are out there fighting. How could I go in to my wife? So he sleeps on the porch, and David gets him drunk, tries to get him to go in, still won't do it. Then David tells Joab, put him in the middle of the fighting and pull back. There's the deceit. And then after David, after Uriah is killed, he tells Joab, he says, look, don't worry about this. It was a battle, and soldiers die in battles all the time. So this thing just has snowballed on David, and he is just out of his mind. Soldiers die in battle all the time. Especially when you pull back from them and leave them there. Well, cover-ups and all that. The thing is, God always sees, doesn't he? Hebrews 4.13. Everything's laid bare before him to whom we must give account. There's no fooling. There's no covering up. So when we go through this thing and Nathan comes to him and tells him, this rich man, you know, he had a guest coming. He had flocks galore. His guest coming. He goes and takes the one lamb this one man had instead of sacrificing one of his own and feeding the guest. He gets the guy's only lamb and kills it and feeds it to the guest. And David says, this guy ought to die. Nathan says, yep, you're the guy. But he tells him, God's forgiven you, but you're going to have some problems because you've done this. You're going to have trouble from within your own house. Your kingdom will never have peace. Your wives are going to be taken in broad daylight. You did this on the sly, everybody's going to know about your wives being taken by your neighbor and the child's going to die. And when Nathan 
presents David with all this, his response, I have sinned. There was no, it was Bathsheba's fault. She shouldn't have been up there on the roof of her house bathing. That's what Saul would have said. That's what Saul did say, more or less, with his episodes. Wasn't my fault. People did that. David didn't do that. No rationalizing, no excuses, no blame shifting. I've sinned. I want to ask you, you know, uh, so, the, so the child becomes sick like Nathan said he would. David falls down on the ground, the scripture says. Seven days he won't eat or drink. He's praying and weeping. And then after seven days the child dies. David knows it's his fault. He caused it. And he knows it. And so my question is this. How do we move from brokenness and guilt? How do we move from that into a healthy place spiritually and mentally and emotionally? How do we move from guilt to be able to live? Because you know what? This... Encouragement is one of the greatest weapons the devil has. If he can discourage a soldier of the Lord, a Christian soldier, he's won the battle. A discouraged soldier won't fight. A discouraged soldier will not carry on. They're not alert. They give up. Discouragement's a huge spiritual weapon. So how do we move from brokenness and guilt to a healthy spiritual position? We become redeemed. We have to have that true repentance. So we repent. We know we're redeemed. How do we get there emotionally? How do we get there mentally? We need to build ourselves back up. We need to be one with God again. We can't let the devil tear us down. That's what we need to do. How do we do it? Lots of prayer. Lots of prayer. Be transformed into the image of Jesus. Be strong with the Christians that we are in fellowship with. I mean, a lot of, a lot, and I'm talking about us, a lot of Christian people have become so discouraged over their own failings which we all have. They can't let go. They're unworthy. Two things. Number one, not understanding grace. I think to understand there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that is a statement made knowing we're going to sin and fail and realize that that Satan wants us to feel condemned. The Spirit wants us to be convicted. And I think Saul felt condemned and fought back and justified himself when David was convicted. And I think one is believing that you, that he is loved and he had a relationship with... David had a relationship, a close relationship with God through worship and his word and a lot of things like that. And I don't think 
Saul did. But I think if you're feeling condemned in your sin, you're falling under Satan of how he wants us to live through our sin. But if you're feeling convicted, that's from the Spirit. And you can go to the love of God and be healed and walk through it. I think that's a good a good explanation the difference between feeling condemned and the and feeling convicted and understanding grace because it's a real problem I mean it's a real problem and you probably know people I know I do who have that very problem and just are struggling to let it go forgiving ourselves when God's already forgiven us it's it's a problem. I think there's a piece of when I'm weak that I am strong. We're told to confess each, our sins to one another. I think that's value to the confessor and value to those that are confessed to. Because if I know that others are struggling with the same thing that I am, I have a more realistic view of who they are and can judge, judge but uh, assess myself mm. in a more realistic manner. Um, suicides in a first world country are higher than a third world country. And the studies show that the reason is is because in a third world country, everybody's life is miserable. And so this is just life. My life is just like yours. In a first world country, we put on the airs of my life is perfect. I post on Facebook my trip to Maui. I don't post on Facebook the argument I had with my spouse last night. Yeah. And everyone's comparing themselves to that unrealistic standard, and my life is miserable. If we are real with each other, then there's more likelihood that we can be real with ourselves. And that is very hard. Very hard. If we will be real with each other and confess our faults to each other or our struggles that we're going through, you got to know someone really, really, really well before they'll share any of that stuff. For the most part, we won't do it. For whatever reason, we don't do it very well. And that is a key source, as you're saying, of recovery, of getting well. Um, the Lord went to an awful lot of trouble for us, and we just have so much trouble letting him forgive us in our own minds. Let me ask you this. We'll close with this. We got, we're going to take two minutes. We'll shut up. Uh, so David's a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13 and 14. What would you say we know about David? What are words that you would use about David from his life or from the Psalms, his writings? He wrote about half of the Psalms. What would be words that you would have seen in the Psalms that you would apply to David that God would say, I love that? What are things about David that God would love as we would understand that to be? Repentance. Repentant? Which goes with honesty and brokenness. Would be in the Psalms, but when I was reading the this year the about the other kings that followed him and how this goes with I mentioned this in Alan's class and how um, 
the other kings didn't tear down all the idols. They left things. And I think David wholeheartedly followed God. He, and I think to me that would be wholeheartedness. And wholeheartedness is in the Psalms. That, that words of the Psalms. Yep. They see it in the, yep. how the other kings did not wholeheartedly mm -hmm. follow him. And you, mm -hmm. hear, you will hear that phrase. He did not wholeheartedly follow like my servant David yep. did. What else? Good ones. What else? Say again. Courageous. Courageous. Yeah, yeah. Couple more. Prayerful. Prayerful. Big time in the Psalms. Anything else? Humble. Humble. Yeah. Uh, Thirty seconds, forty seconds here, we're, and we're done. Uh, these are some that I wrote down. Some of them you've mentioned. There are many others, and these are not necessarily. These are just some I thought of. But he revered God. He respected God. Talks about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declares his handiwork. That's a lot of reverence for who God is. The Lord is great and highly or greatly to be praised. His greatness is beyond understanding. That's revering God. Dependence and need is, has been expressed. Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land. My soul thirsts for you as in a parched land. That's dependence and need. For God, verse uh, Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and salvation. Love and devotion with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandment. With all my heart I praise you. With all that I am I praise his holy name. Love and devotion. Praise and worship. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And on and on. Thanksgiving. A lot in David. Grievous sin, but an honest heart, a humble heart, a repentant heart. And later in his life, all of these psalms come out out of the abundance of his heart. You know, Gary, um, and one more thing. And Saul didn't write any psalms that we know of. Yes. I remember Terry Rush made a, a like the broken vessel. He talks about, he said, if the vessel wasn't broken, you couldn't see the light coming through. I mean, if it's just the perfect looking uh, base, vessel, then, then people don't see God. But when we're broken... And we know we've got these mistakes. And you can see through the cracks, you see the light coming through. That's a good illustration. God bless. Great discussion. Sorry we ran out of time. Thank you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.